In St. Luke's Gospel, the angel said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, good evening, friends. Merry Christmas. I said, I said good morning this morning, which I do every year, and I'm correcting myself tonight. Merry Christmas. Uh, glad to have you all here with us today as we celebrate the... Uh, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ in the bleak midwinter of Vero Beach. Yes, it's only 63 degrees, but if you live in Florida, that is in fact cold. Um, I've been doing some thinking this week. Um, my wife tells me it's always a dangerous thing, but I've been doing some thinking, and I've been thinking about Christmas. And specifically, I've been thinking about Christmas in lots of different ways and what I was going to preach on this year. Uh, and I discovered something, and it occurred to me that Christmas is really just kind of weird. And I, and I don't mean that to be, I don't mean that in an in a, in a impious way, but it is, it's a weird thing. I mean, if you think about it, if you think about it, right, stop and think. Up north, we would uh, spend hours and hours in the snow covering our houses with ridiculous amounts of Christmas lights, right? That's what we do. It's weird. Um, but even closer to home, we have things like, we talk about elves, has anybody, anybody here ever seen an elf before? I never have. We talk about elves on Christmas, right? What does that mean? We talk about flying, flying reindeer on Christmas. That's a little, is that weird to you? If you say it out loud, it's a weird thing. It gets even weirder. Uh, let's just lay it out there, right? We, we celebrate an overage, an overweight, middle-aged white guy in a velvet suit with a suspicious red nose who, who, who scuttles down the chimneys of strangers' houses to bring gifts to their children. That's weird. Amen? Is Christmas weird or not? I submit to you that Christmas, at least to me, is a little strange. And actually, it's not just the, that part of Christmas, the, the uh, you know, secular part, the, the strangest part of all of it, actually, and this is what I talk about tonight, is the real stuff. It gets even stranger. I mean, if you think about it, and again, sentiment clouds our view of the facts. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. The Christmas story tells us, tells us that angels, angels appear from heaven to a bunch of low-life shepherds in rural Israel in the middle of the night to proclaim something ridiculous on the surface, peace on earth, because of the birth of some no-name Jewish infant from Nazareth. Nazareth is a nowheresville, man, named Jesus. It's weird. There's a lot of weird going on on Christmas. And we just sort of accept it because we've sort of, we sort of drunk the Kool-Aid over so many years, we forget to see it through the lens of what the facts actually tell us. I submit to you today that one of the problems with Christmas, which makes it weird and acceptably weird, is that we, we, we live in a world of sentiment, right? Like guys in red velvet suits climbing down chimneys to give strangers gifts. It's weird. And we don't question it because we have sent all this sentiment built around it. Sentiment clouds our minds to the details of the story, whether it's Santa Claus or the angels in the fields at night. And I'll tell you this, one of my, if you don't know me, one of my self-appointed missions in life, friends, yes, I have a few, 
is to rid the church, or at least this church, or at least try, of Christian sentiment, of feelings and presuppositions that actually blind us to the power of the story that's going on, to blind us to the strangeness, the weirdness, and the power. And I'll be honest with you, the reason I'm on this self-appointed mission to, to, get, to cut through the sentiment is personal. Because when I was a kid, my parents dragged me to church on Christmas and sometimes Easter. Yeah, I didn't go to church as a kid. They would drag me along and I would sit in church and I would hear these musics and I'd see all this ceremonial and all this stuff. And I thought it was just kind of silly. It's kind of weird. And I know now why. Because all the sentiment distracted me from the enormity of the claim of what Christmas Eve is all about. And so tonight, friends, if you're a guy or a girl who doesn't like all the sentiment either, today is your lucky day. Because we're going to cut through all the chase, and we're going to go right to the core of it. The mission and the reason for the birth of Jesus in the first place. The mission which, frankly, when I saw it plainly, changed my life and will change yours if you see it. For what it claims. So two things I want to talk about today, about this Christmas story that might actually, I hope, challenge you to think of it in a new way. Two things. Firstly, I want to look at the human heart's consuming need for peace. Point one. And the second point is the solution that Jesus gives us. Two things. The human heart, my heart and your heart, your consuming need for peace. I'll get to that in a minute. And secondly, the solution that Jesus offers us today. So the first thing, the first thing, and when I point it out to you, it's obvious. The consuming need, consuming need of your heart for peace. What does that mean? Well, we have to know what peace means. We have to know, we're going to get into that in a second. We have to know what it means because the main reason for the birth of this Jesus guy in the first place, the whole purpose of his birth is to announce peace. The angels say this, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. What does that mean? Well, the thing is peace, when I, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I always thought of peace as this little boy being born in a barn, and it's kind of cute and cuddly, and you got all the animals around going, oh, look how cute he is. That's very peaceful. That's not what it means. And I'll tell you another story. When I was the rector of Trinity Episcopal Church in Red Bank, New Jersey. Anybody here from New Jersey or Red Bank? A few? Anyway, don't tell anybody, but I'm just kidding. When I was the rector of Trinity Church in Vera Beach, I was walking down the street, and there was a big banner across the street, that they put up every year at Christmas, and it said, peace on earth. And I remember seeing it once, and I was walking down the street, and I went, peace on earth. And in my spirit, I said, yeah, right. Peace on earth is not true. I mean, turn the news on, man. I mean, just open your eyes. Just just yesterday, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal, which I read, uh, I subscribe to and read it when I get to it, an article about the king of Saudi Arabia who ordered the slaying, the brutal slaying of a, of a journalist who dared to question his authority. You tell the parents of that slain man, his name was Jamal Khashoggi, hope I'm pronouncing it right. You tell the parents of that murdered journalist, hey, peace on earth, man. 
They'll laugh at you, and they should. There's no peace on earth. On an even bigger scale, I mean, just look at the facts, right? On a bigger scale, on a bigger scale, more people have been killed in the 20th century through violence and war than in all the centuries up until the 20th century combined. Let me just be plain, right? If peace on earth, the sentimental version of peace, if peace on earth, peace between nations, peace between kingdoms, you know, uh, coexist bumper stickers, right? If that's really Jesus' mission, then Jesus Christ was a miserable failure. But the sad part of it is, and I believe this for a long time, that that's what we actually think is the case. And we wind up talking about peace on earth all the time knowing it's not true and sort of living this fairy tale, this lie. But here's the question, and this is what I want to get to. What if the angel's declaration of peace on earth means something altogether different than what you think it means. Let me give it to you like this. You may not know this. If you come to church here, you do. You may not know that the New Testament is written in Greek. So the the, the text we read is an English translation of the Greek New Testament, which, in fact, we do have, by the way. It's not some lost book somewhere. We have it. I've got a copy in my office if you want to see it. The New Testament is written in Greek, and so, we, and so the Greek words have to be translated into English words. And the English word peace is the Greek word irene. If you have a girl or a daughter or a friend named Irene, it's where the word comes from. And the, word, the, the Greek word translated peace is the, is the word irene. And listen to this. This is crucially important. This peace is not, listen, listen, listen. This peace is not the absence of conflict. It is the absence of fear. Let me say it again. The peace that Jesus offers you is not the absence of conflict. It is the absence of fear. It's a huge difference. Huge difference. And in fact, I submit to you, if you think about it like that, which is what the scriptures claim, and what we're here to talk about tonight, pretty much everything you do in your life, and everything that I do in my life, is an effort to get to this Irene, peace, this freedom from fear, right? If you think about it, everything that you do, you do to prevent fear. I'll give you a couple of examples. You work. Some of you, if you're, unless you're retired, you work because your work removes your fear from homelessness and poverty and the inability to provide for your family and the social stigma that goes with being jo- uh, unemployed. So you work to avoid fear. Your relationships is another one. You have families and friends and co- colleagues and things because of a fear to be alone. Your health, right? You go to the doctor, you take your meds, you exercise, you take care of yourself. Why? Because you have the fear of the consequence of pain and suffering. My point is, this may sound obscure, but the fact of the matter is that everything you do in your life, every decision you make, is an effort to to find this very peace that Jesus offers us today. I'm gonna get to that in a moment. We seek this peace, this freedom, not from conflict, but freedom from fear. It is the core motivation behind every decision that you make. And I submit to you this, that friends, few people actually ever really find it. Not because this peace doesn't exist, it does, but because we're looking for it in the wrong place. So let me ask you this. Let me just turn this around, right? Um, What about you? What are the things 
What are the things that you, you rely upon to alleviate your own? A, what do you fear, firstly? Name it and claim it, right? What is it that you fear? And secondly, what are the things that you do to alleviate those fears? To try to grab this elusive peace, this freedom from worry and doubt and insecurity and, and, and instability, this fear. What are the things that you do? If you're like me, you look to your family or your friends or your money or your distractions. And those are all good things. They're not, you know, golf is not a bad thing. Family is not a bad thing. Money is not a bad thing. But the problem is, here's the, here's the fundamental problem of existential humanity. All of these things will fail you. They cannot not fail you. They cannot not fail to give you the peace you seek. And the, the reason is the things of this world will never give you lasting peace because the things of this world are not lasting. And you are actually asking the things of this world, whether it's people, places, or things, to do something for you that they cannot possibly do. But Jesus can, and I'm going to show you how. And the reason that Jesus gives us true peace is because Jesus came not, listen, not to create peace between man and man. That's what we hear, freedom from conflict. What Jesus Christ came to earth to do was to establish peace between man and God, between you and your Father in heaven, between me and my Creator. See, here's the thing. The Old Testament, if you know your Old Testament, there's a strange paradox there. And St. Paul picks up on this. That's why he converted to be a Christian. It's a strange paradox in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of all of these laws, 613 of them to be specific, that God says, do this to be made right with me, right? And there's all these laws, and people try to keep them. St. Paul, who was a rock star and extremely conscientious, tried his darndest to keep all the rules, and he realized he couldn't do it. He realized that no matter what he did, he could not alleviate this fear. And he saw the paradox, Paul did, as a first century Jew, that in his own life, no matter how hard he tried to use the things of this world to, give, to alleviate his fear, no matter how hard he tried to be at peace, he failed, just like you and me. So the fundamental problem with humanity, friends, is that we are alienated from God because of our sins. And it's actually, it sounds a little strange, but it's actually, if you think about it, it's not rocket science. I mean, think about other relationships that you have in your own lives, whether it's with your wife or your kids or your friends. What are the things that get in the way that burden those relationships, that break them? You can call it sin, you can call it brokenness, you can call it whatever you want. I don't care what you call it. The biblical word actually for this very dynamic that breaks relationships is hamartia. Translated as sin. But the word hamartia is actually a pretty innocuous word. It means, means to shoot an arrow and miss. Anybody here ever miss? I do. Paul realizes that he, no matter how hard he tried, he missed the target. He fell short. And so do you and so do I. And that, friends, is the root of all the disorder and dysfunction and fear in your life and mine. And that's my first point, that each one of us desires and craves this peace, this lack of fear, and yet it's elusive. We can never get it until, point two, we see the solution that Jesus offers to us. Let me show you this. There is a solution, friends, to the problem, to the paradox of the Old Testament, and it's this, that God sends his son to become a man, 
to become a human, incarnate, fully God and fully man in the person of Jesus Christ, who reconciles us to God, who punches our ticket, who dies on the cross to pay for our sins, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to keep the law in your place and in mine, to, say, to pay our debt, to save us from hell, to be blunt, and frankly, to set us free from fear, to restore us to a right relationship with our Father in heaven, Friends, it is the greatest offer. It is the greatest, gracious gift ever given. It is the biggest gift you could possibly accept. That's the true story of Christmas, friends. That God sent his son to rescue us. It's not about a baby away in a manger, asleep on the hay. It's about a savior who died to save you and me. And if you put aside the sentiment for a moment, and if I'm making you think a little bit, and you're thinking, boy, this is the strangest Christmas sermon I've heard before, hang on, with, hang on a second, hang on a minute. Let me show you something. If you put aside all the sentiment we've bought over the past hundred years, and you look at the hymns we're actually singing, you'll see it. I'll give you just two examples. It's, it, and it's been there all along. Let me show you. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant, fearless. Or, hark the herald angels sing. You know this, we're going to sing this in a bit. Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. Here's the singer, God and sinners reconciled. Friends, this message of Christmas has been there all along, but our sentiment blinds us. See, Jesus came to earth to bring peace between man and God. And here's the interesting thing. When you have peace with God, when you are at peace with God, that fear is gone. What can stop you? What could possibly, what could destroy you if God is for you? If God is for us, who can be against, Scripture says. When you have peace with God, you have peace with yourself. But you can also have peace with others. Let me show you a story. Let me show you a story of men that had peace with God and as a consequence had peace with each other. Christmas Eve, 1914. Europe is engaged in a war which they called then the Great War, the war to end all wars. Yeah, right. But that's what they called it. And Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany sent Christmas trees to his troops that were deployed in the trenches. And the German soldiers set these trees up in the trenches as they were in the, in, on Christmas Eve that night in the cold and the snow. The Germans set up their trenches, these trees in the trenches, and they began to sing the hymn, Stille Nacht, Silent Night. As the Germans sang this silent night in German, their voices carried over the piercing cold and darkness of no man's land to the other trenches across the field, the French and the Scots, hearing the Germans sing Stille Nacht in German, but they began to sing Silent Night in French and in English, along with their Christian brothers and sisters across no man's land. And then something astounding happened. Slowly, these soldiers began to, began to climb out of their trenches, which was a dangerous thing in the midst of sniper fire in World War I. 
And they climb out of their trenches and they meet each other together on the field of battle, but not as warriors, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, made right with God their Father in heaven, and now being made right with each other. And they engaged in soldiers' banters, they exchanged gifts, tobacco, and things like that, which soldiers do. And then what they did is fascinating. Those men on that field celebrated Christmas Eve Mass together in no man's land. Just like you and I are doing right now. See, friends, men who know peace through Jesus Christ, these men now had peace with each other. And you will never have peace with other men or yourself until you are first reconciled to your Father in heaven, until you are first reconciled with God, your Creator. Because to cite the angels, to cite the angels and what they say, which is so profound, on Christmas Eve, God, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace on those with whom he favors. And those whom he favors are the ones for whom Christ died and have received that gift. For those who accept the greatest gift ever offered, not freedom from conflict, not freedom from suffering, not freedom from want, not freedom from hurt, but freedom from fear itself. The peace which passes all understanding, the peace that only Jesus Christ can give. That, friends, is why we celebrate the birth of the Messiah. Shall we pray? Father, we stand in awe today of your goodness, of your love, of your rescue mission to send Jesus to earth, to become man, to die for our sins and reconcile us to you, to give us peace. Lord, we thank you today for that gracious offer. We renew our own lives to conform our lives to it. Help us, Lord, to live lives of fearlessness. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.